The Historian's Podcast is underway. I'm Bob Cudmore, and we welcome Peter Betts. How are you, Peter? Oh, I'm fine, Bob, and I feel very welcome. Very good. Peter Betts writes a bi-weekly history column, I believe that's correct, for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville. He's a retired Fulton County historian, also retired from a career as an educator at Fulton Montgomery Community College. And he's been on the uh, podcast before telling us uh, rare and unusual stories uh, about life in Fulton County years ago, Fulton County, New York. And the first uh, topic we're bringing up with you, Peter, is that you've written about animals who made history, too. Right. Uh, and uh, we've got two or three examples here. I can, uh, you just, I'll just start talking about it. Sure. Uh, many events besides movies have occurred in Gloversville's Glove Theater. One of the most unusual scenes occurred May 20th, 1949. When Rex, Rex and Bonnie, two upstanding members of the Gloversville canine community, were honored for rescuing four-year-old August Butch Rupert on a cold February afternoon. Uh. Bentley Sook, a manager of the Mohawk Hudson Humane Society, presented the awards to these two canines. <laughs> so the question, of course, is how did this come about? Yes. Well, little Butch Rupert accidentally slipped and fell into the swollen Cayadetta while watching the high water running past behind his house. Mm-hmm. Rex and Bonnie apparently heard his cries and immediately attempted his rescue. Bonnie, a year-and-a-half-old police dog, jumped into the water, grabbed Butch by his coat collar, and managed to pull him halfway up the bank uh, just above the water level. Then Rex, a large 10-year-old male of undetermined lineage, uh, intentionally lay on top of Bonnie, thereby keeping both Bonnie and Butch from slipping back into the creek. Both dogs began barking. Butch's mother had missed him and had been searching, but was unaware he had gone outside. She heard dogs barking, but it was almost a half hour before she realized that the noise might have something to do with her missing son. The leader reported, Mrs. Rupert found Rex and Bonnie holding her son at the bank and pulled him ashore with the help of the dogs. (laughs) Humane Society manager Sook uh, informed his audience that Rex and Bonnie were the first Gloversville canines ever decorated with American Humane Society Humanity Medals, and very few dogs in the Capital District ever had been. Mayor Robert Ramsey suggested that Whether or not Rex and Bonnie understood the purpose of the ceremony, the event was occurring because it gave all present an opportunity to reflect on the special relationship between children and dogs and the loyalty between them. Isn't that something? Yes. One also might point out it was a good way to kind of convince kids not to hang around swollen creeks. That would be a good good point. But they did practically everything, Rex and Bonnie, except do CPR. I mean, they were really... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Ramsey pointed out neither dog belonged to Butch Rupert or even knew him, Hmm. but they rescued him anyway. Isn't that something? Now, go ahead. And he quoted, he quoted, if these dogs could say anything, they would probably ask us to give them just a little bit more love and devotion. 
He concluded saying, a dog will take a lot more than a man's wife will. <laughs> uh, anyhow, perhaps as a married man, Ramsey knew what he was talking about. I don't know. Now, you have some other animal stories, right? Oh, well, yeah. Uh, we're, we're pretty well done with this one. Uh, let's see. Yes, uh, this this was a, this is a funny thing, but this really happened. It's hard to believe. Uh, and this was uh, October nineteenth, nineteen forty-five, uh, in the local newspaper. And the headline was "Fluffy Sleeps as Two Women Battle Over Ownership." Uh-huh. Okay, the readers were informed the case of Fluffy, a white Angora cat, came before Assistant City Judge Hugh Smith, and that harassed. Justice reserved decision at the end of a somewhat hectic trial session, which lasted from 1.30 until 5 o'clock. The, lit- the litigants, apparently, became quite catty. <laughs> uh, the action <coughs> regarding Fluffy's ownership was initiated by Mrs. Pearl Sanders of Willow Street against Mrs. Bertha Kenyon of Kent Street. These streets, incidentally, uh, intersect at a point Mm -hmm. it would be convenient for a cat to go from one place to another. Uh Uh, Mrs. Sanders demanded the return of Fluffy and damages of $150 for wrongful detention of the animal. Mrs. Kenyon received Fluffy as a gift in May 1941. She admitted Fluffy was a neighborhood rover. The first time Fluffy went AWOL in December 1944, she remained on the land for two months and then came home. <laughs> Fluffy next decamped in February of 1945 when Kenyon declared her first that she first noticed Fluffy around the Sanders house, but she never went to the door to request the cat because it wouldn't have done me any good, she said. Uh. She had testified that in early September, she and her daughter Lucille noticed Fluffy was over at Mrs. Sanders' front porch. Fluffy came to them, and they picked her up and took her home. Mrs. Sanders, on the other hand, contented, contented herself with claiming that the cat came to the Sanders' house about a year ago and had since made its home there. She made the point that there was no restraint on Fluffy or any fence to keep her yard bound, and although free to roam, she always returned to Sanders' house. Mm. So poor Judge Smith, <clears throat> as the afternoon wore on very slowly, he endured tedious, repetitive testimony from a plethora of emotional neighborhood witnesses. And you know, I wonder if he would try what Solomon tried in the in the good in the Bible. Remember when we had these two women fighting over a baby, and he said, well, we'll have to cut the baby in half. And the woman who wouldn't let him do that, he said, well, I'm going to give you the baby because you have more concern for the child. Well, that's a, that's a good thought, but apparently Justice Smith, uh, <laughs> maybe the SBCA was looking over his shoulder, too. You don't know. Good day. Anyhow, uh, a whole bunch of people got in on it, and uh, they all swore that Fluffy owed her feline allegiance to whichever litigant they were testifying for. Uh, and uh, a lot of people were there just to gawk and watch and make comments, and the judge got very hot under the collar, apparently, at one point about it because a lot of people were making cat calls. Uh, So what did he do, finally? Well, we're going to get into that right now. Uh, Attorney Ernest Abdella appeared for Sanders, 
while attorney B.J. McKillop represented Kenyon. Mm -hmm. The most prominent witness, Fluffy, refused to testify, feigning disinterest in the whole procedure while lying in the arms of Mrs. Kenyon. Judge Smith did not hold Fluffy in contempt, however, (laughs) although he probably felt a good deal of contempt for having to be there that day. At the end of the long afternoon, Judge Judge Smith announced he would reserve decision for three or four days to study laws relating to animal abandonment, strays, and antagonistic neighbors. Mm -hmm. Now, the logical question is, what was his decision? Yes. And I'm afraid at this point I have to either make up a story or let you down. And inasmuch as historians don't make up stories, I really can't do that. The truth is I have scanned and scanned and scanned every newspaper I could come across through our good friend FultonHistory.com that I know you're familiar with. Yes. And uh, I cannot find any notice anywhere of the issue being settled. Maybe it was settled out of court. Well, maybe Fluffy got disgusted and left the neighborhood, too. Or, or perhaps know. they worked out joint custody. Well, <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, we'll never know. Well, let me rescue you from the animals here move on to our next topic. You had a, a column, Peter Betts uh, joining us from Rights for the Leader Herald, a history column. A deputy sheriff found a bomb in his car. Well, I have an even funnier animal story, but if you want to move on, we'll move on. Okay. Uh, yes, this is the truth. On the evening of June 10th, 1945, Fulton County Deputy Sheriff Nelson Pierce of 2nd Avenue, Gloversville, parked his truck as usual in the yard next to his home. Uh, Deputy Pierce used to pick up for his side business, which was roofing, and the next morning he expected to head out early with his assistant, uh, Bill White, and uh, do a roofing job before going on the job. Uh, he expected the next morning's work would be purely routine, small job over in Johnstown. And uh, he was he had breakfast and going to pick up uh, his, his uh, assistant there and go do the job, mm-hmm. uh, which is exactly what he did. But they had hardly traveled a block before Pierce noticed his engine was skipping badly. And he made it as far as George Oldhouse Garage at Fulton, uh, Fulton Street, where the men uh, went into the office to wait while Odout and his assistant uh, raised the hood and started looking around and trying to find out what was going on. They immediately noticed two odd wires running off the engine that shouldn't be there. Mm. To quote the leader, they could not account for them and began to trace them. One ran as a ground connected to the hood bracing, and the other disappeared back under the floor of the cab. They traced the second wire and discovered it disappeared under the driver's seat. Lifting the seat, they found su- they were very surprised to find the wire running to a small package wrapped with ordinary brown wrapping paper. Mm-hmm. At first, Odhout believed it was nothing more than a practical joke. In those days, you may remember them, they had those things they called buzz bombs mm-hmm. that would uh, make a fearsome noise but not do any harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not so easy to get these days, if at all, but mm-hmm. they were around then. The idea was to wrap both wires on the buzz bomb around bare spots on spark plug wires, and when the owner started the car, the thing would buzz, uh, for, and then it would whistle, and then some smoke would come out of it, 
and then it would have a loud bang, and everybody would, uh, you know, go away unhappy. <laughs> but this was not exactly that. According to the newspaper, all this time, the truck engine was still running. Mm. Uh, Mr. Warner probably uh, chuckled as he grasped the bundle and pulled the wires loose by force without even seeing what was in it. Okay, and it was not until he had the package out of the car and opened it that he realized what he was looking at was a lethal charge of two sticks of dynamite. Yipes. Now, in those days, dynamite wasn't that hard to get. You could go down to Johnny Larrabee's and walk up to the counter and say, I need a stick of dynamite, and they would sell you one. Okay. These days, you know, we live in controlled times, so it's harder to get. Anyhow, uh, both the Gloversville Police and the Sheriff's Department were immediately called. Sheriff Eugene Smith, Gloversville Detective Harry Hart, and Deputy Sheriff Frank Zilka shortly arrived and carefully cut the connecting wires between the two sticks of dynamite and took it back to the sheriff's office. They were, of course, intending to examine it for fingerprints. Hmm. Further examination showed, quote, a detonating cap had been inserted at the end of one of the sticks and properly wired. Hmm. Only the fact that the wires were not correctly hooked up to the engine prevented the explosion. Uh, all area highway departments were checked for missing dynamite, but none was found. Hmm. <clears throat> of course, it wouldn't be found if it was missing, but right, you get right. the point. I do. Uh, it could have uh, come from almost anywhere in those days. It wasn't hard to get a hold of. Even farmers bought sticks just to blow up uh, old stumps. Uh, the newspaper suggested that the sheriff's department would pull out all stops investigating this attempted bombing. Since Deputy Pierce, the candidate for Ralph Cramden's fabled trip to the moon, was one of their own. In any case, Sheriff Smith developed useful leads within several hours of the discovery. These undisclosed leads caused his deputies to travel to Oppenheim by late evening. There they located a man named Ernest Darling at his rural home and brought him down to the office where the district attorney... uh, and uh, Assistant District Attorney Arthur Alisi questioned him. Mm-hmm. They were successful. A complete com- confession was obtained, and the defendant was placed under arrest immediately. <clears throat> the ma- main question, of course, was, why did Darling do it? Yes. Had Pierce written him a traffic ticket? Sometimes it doesn't take much more than that. Today we have, quote, sources who wish to remain unidentified. In the 1940s, the term was unofficial sources, uh-huh. and these proclaimed, quote, jealousy and revenge may have been, have been identified as possible motives. Okay, now, Darling was employed at the Cherry Burrell Machine Company in Little Falls, had a wife and small son, and is said to have entirely wired his own home for electricity which no doubt make him think he was probably capable of wiring a bomb as well. No doubt he had wired his home better than he wired Pierce's truck. <laughs> Darling was arraigned in June before Johnstown Justice Ferrant and held for grand jury action. And uh, they put him in jail for several months to just sit there and think about things. Anyhow... Uh, The actual charge Darling was held on was something of a legal anomaly. Only one comparable case, 
dating from 1911, was in the New York State law books. The district attorney was able to hold Darling, even though he had not successfully completed his crime, charging him with deliberate and premeditated design uh-huh. to murder Pierce, based on a section of criminal law which states anyone guilty of attempting the life of a person, although not successful, can be held anyway. Mm-hmm. And so he was. Mm. Uh, on Monday, November 26, 1945, Darling finally received his day in court. And no doubt Nelson Pierce was there, ready to testify to both his scary experience and his extremely good luck. The county commissioner of jurors took no chances. They had 125 extra jurors summoned because both the defense and the prosecution expected to make many challenges before impaneling a jury. Mm -hmm. After all, in a small county like Fulton, a case like this was really dynamite. Oh, dear. Sorry, but I had to do that. I understand. Uh, But it was all pomp and circumstance because at 3.15, still in time to make the evening paper, Darling, on the advice of counsel, changed his plea to guilty. Uh-huh. And, of course, he went away for quite a while. Let's see here. Uh, Attorney Ward, perhaps using the questionable excuse that this was the first time Darling had ever attempted to blow anybody up, <laughs> and besides, he had a family and was otherwise a decent enough fellow when he wasn't blowing people up, uh, made an emotional plea for leniency. But his plea fell on deaf ears. Judge Calderwood, no doubt holding the conservative opinion, the people who dynamite others' cars even once should suffer for it, immediately sentenced Darling to two and a half to ten years in hard labor in Danamora. Mm. Uh, And so much for that case. All right. We're talking with uh, Peter Betts, and we'll have more with uh, Peter in just a moment. Some stories from Fulton County history. This is Bob Cudmore. Here at the Historian's Podcast, we depend on you, our listeners, to help us pay for production expenses. If you enjoy our podcast, please donate online at gofundme.com forward slash historians2016. Or you can send a check made out to me, Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. That's Bob Cudmore. 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Thank you. We're talking with Peter Betts, who writes about Fulton County history for the Leader Herald newspaper in uh, Gloversville. I'd like to jump ahead, if I could, Peter. Uh, I'm not sure we could get in the one topic I was going to bring up with you, so I'm going to ask you about the other. You said you had some uh, interesting comments to make on the arrival of television in Fulton County, and by extension, the rest of the world. Well, it wasn't Fulton County per se. It was pretty much the rest of the world, and you can go back into a lot of this yourself, Bob, uh, because that article that I wrote, Blend Memories uh, with Facts, and and, uh, concludes with news of rediscovering a rare and interesting early television set. Okay. Uh, it also recalls an important advocate for affordable television sets, GE engineer Dr. Walter Ransom Baker. Right. Uh, in fact, if you if uh, 
you probably wouldn't think of this, but Walter Ransom Gale Baker, which mm-hmm. was his full name, think what those initials stand for. Yes, he they named WRGB after him. Exactly. You get the prize. Yeah. <laughs> uh, while the memories are mine, I suspect similar ones belong to many other readers, older ones at least. During 1948, advertisements for reasonably priced television sets began appearing in popular magazines, and Radio Mirror magazine suddenly became TV Radio Mirror. The first family-owned a television set on our street lived next door, and they invited us over to see it. Imagine the thrill. Yeah. There, this You probably saw a TV for the first time in someone else's house, too, I would imagine. Yes, I did. For me, it was the. We lived in a four family house on Pulaski Street in Amsterdam. And the family, I believe their name was Pabus, who lived in the front flat. We were in the rear flat. They had a TV, and I used to go there to watch Howdy Doody. <laughs> right. Well, that was actually the very first program I saw on our neighbor's television set, too. Uh, there was uh, only one channel, of course, as you remember, is connected to WRGB, and I watched Howdy Duty that special night for the first time. And so began my crusade for my family buying a television set, and I'm sure every other young fellow was doing the same. Suddenly, radio, where one must use one's brain power to imagine the scene described in the program, seemed like too much work. Mm-hmm. We knew which families purchased televisions by observing the telltale H-pattern chimney antennas. Watch them go up every day, more and more of them. From 1949 onward, more antennas appeared, uh, and the TV screens, of course, were very small. The pictures were often very fuzzy, but it was still television. The day's programs didn't start until 3 o'clock in the afternoon mm-hmm. and began with a cooking show. Well, we kids all thought that was pretty lame. But even so, the very first day our set was operational, all the kids on my street were there as soon as we got out of school, and there was the lady doing the cooking, and by gosh, we watched her. <laughs> uh, by the spring of 1950, my crusade had succeeded. Or maybe my father just wanted to watch the Friday night boxing matches. Mm-hmm. Whatever, it worked. Our little set was a 10-inch diagonal, if it was that big. And we got it from Northville's Denton and Life Furniture Store. Of course, they were for sale many places right in Amsterdam, too. And my father had a very good friend named Bill Hojohn, who was an incredibly gifted man with electronics of all sorts of things. And he climbed up on our roof, and he got the antenna up there. And as you probably remember, one person was downstairs and one and the other on the roof, right. and shouting back and forth to each other, yeah, yeah. a little to the left, maybe a little higher. <laughs> remember that? Yes, I do. And, and what about those that didn't even get the outside antenna? You'd have rabbit ears for your... Well, set. I know. I, I, we, didn't have that, we didn't have that experience, but I guess uh, that would be a way to try and do it, too. There, there was an indoor antennas, and they, yeah. di- they didn't work very well was the problem. No, I think a lot of them were really just, you know, sales pitches, and people would say, oh, that'll improve things, and then they get it home and find out it didn't. Yeah. Anyhow, much of television's uh, national sales was due to Dr. Walter Baker's requirement. He absolutely insisted his engineers design affordable sets. 
a corporate recognition of his major role in developing transmission equipment uh, was demonstrated when the call letters of GE's Pioneer Station, WRGB, employed his initials. Yeah. In May 13, 1939, Schenectady Gazette announced that Dr. Baker was appointed the director of a new department that will consolidate all radio and television activity. Mm. When he died on October 30, 1960, the Lockport Union Sun commented, Dr. Baker organized and guided national committees that set standards for the first commercial television broadcasting in 1941 and color telecasting in 1953. And many other things. How are we doing on time? Well, we have a few minutes left, and unfortunately, okay. maybe for your stories, I, I'm having worked at that operation briefly while it was still owned by GE at uh, WRGB and then WGY, they started uh, television broadcasting in the late 20s with uh, a different system than was de- developed or that ultimately used. It was some kind of rotating discs or whatnot. But then those first broadcasts were uh, called WGY-TV. But then, as you say, by 1939, electronic television had been uh, created, and uh, they were that's really the birth of uh, right. television around here. And one I know local Amsterdam story or uh, the, uh, from the Duchessy family, uh, one of the uh, earlier Duke Duchessys, that was always kind of the family nickname, uh, and I think also Peter Duchessy, were boxers, well-known Amsterdam boxers, and, and they would appear in the uh, boxing matches that WRGB would have. I think that it was in the, might even have been during the war, uh, the, during the uh, early 1940s uh, at their Schenectady studio. Well, this follows up on the second part of the story, too, when you're talking about the 1940s. That had to do with what I call the rediscovery of a very interesting early television set. Uh, I've been in the Elwood Museum many times, and I know you have too. And I always noticed over in the corner there was this large rectangular thing. (laughs) And uh, one day I opened it up and realized that it was a television set. And uh, uh, let's see, where are we here? I, I went to the computer and I, and I, you know, started looking these early things up in the history of television, and and I came across it, and I discovered that it was a commercial television set offered uh, in 1941. There were two models. One was with a radio uh, in addition, and one was just a television. Hmm. This one had just a television, and anyone who goes to the Elwood Museum can see it at any time. However, these sets were all priced around around $800. Wow. Okay, now, uh, according to one source, $800 in 1941 is the equivalent today of $9,600. So you can see you weren't going to, cost a lot, going to sell a lot of these things when you could still buy a new car for $850. I think so. <clears throat> yeah, However, be- uh, the Elwood television slightly predates even these commercial units. Uh, according to one television historian, it is a particular model of which there are only two built, and they were built in 1938, the earliest ones built. They were used for testing purposes and public demonstration. Now, the identical twin of this set that is in the Elwood Museum also still exists, and this one is in the Schenectady Museum. Hmm. 
there is a photograph, incidentally, on the Internet uh, taken uh, from the Schenectady Gazette of years ago showing Dr. Baker uh, placidly sitting in front of one of these sets, either the one in Elwood or the other one. <laughs> really? <clears throat> well, Peter, I must say the old clock on the wall tells us, as they used to say on the old-time radio, that we're, that we're uh, running out of time or run out of time. Uh, thank you for joining us. Peter Betts writes a bi-weekly history column for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville. He's a retired Fulton County historian. He's also uh, retired as a, from a career as an educator at Fulton Montgomery Community College. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. This is Bob Cutmore.